Good morning. I feel so privileged. Okay. All right. Uh, I feel so privileged to be with you this morning, um, seeing so many old friends and meeting new ones. Uh, you know, this I consider to be my church, my home congregation, even though it's a little hard to get here from Staten Island when I don't have an extra two hours each way. Uh, but I read the newsletter, uh, virtually every word. I've been following the daily devotionals uh, that have been appearing in Lent, uh, and I really uh, count myself uh, among you. Um, when I was teaching Theology of Mission here in Manhattan, I always brought the class here because I wanted them to see what a church and mission looked like. And so um, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, your current pastoral staff, I count them as dear friends and colleagues whose witness to the gospel I only can hope to emulate. Let us pray. O one in whom we live and move and have our being, open our hearts, open our minds, stir our very being with your energy, and help us to leave this place even more deeply committed as your servants. In Jesus' name, amen. The demonstration in the temple takes place on the Monday of what has come to be called Holy Week. It's one of the most dramatic moments of Jesus' recorded history, and it surely reflects actual history. Now, the temple in these days is an exceedingly compromised institution. It plays both political and religious functions. Ancient Israel is under the ruthless Roman occupation with Pontius Pilate totally in charge. Now, to rule an occupied people, the Romans must co-opt local leaders to be collaborators and henchmen, to maintain order while funneling taxes and tribute to the imperial war machine. The chief priests are the political and religious aristocracy that fulfill that role, and the Romans reward them with wealth and privilege. For faithful Jews, this is a deplorable state of affairs. Here we have those in charge of worship in the most sacred space in Judaism who have also signed on to pacify and mollify the people in their oppression, to putting, as it were, a religious face on Roman oppression and persuading them that the crushing of the poor and the quartering of hated occupation troops are really for their own good. You've probably heard Jesus described as a radical from this pulpit, maybe many times. 
and rightly so. But maybe not many of you have heard him termed a conservative, which I'm calling him now. In the ancient tradition of the prophets, Jesus, what Jesus is about is calling the people to remember the terms of the covenant that God had made with them. God would be their God, and they would commit, commit to equitable distribution of land, radical hospitality to the stranger, and generous care for those on the margins. This Passover, Jesus comes to Jerusalem filled with passion, a passionate commitment to the covenant with God, the covenant of old. Angrily, he swoops in, driving people out of the temple, overturning the tables of the money changers, upending the selling of doves, and shouting an accusation of the old prophets. You are making God's house of prayer into a den of robbers. This dramatic demonstration has traditionally been termed the cleansing of the temple. You'll see that heading in our Bibles, usually. As if the problem were either, one, to clean out petty merchants and dishonest currency manipulators, or, two, to reject the temple sacrificial system, even Judaism itself. I prefer, prefer to go with New Testament theologians Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, some of you are familiar with his work, I'm sure, in, in their, progressive, I mean, their provocative classic, uh, The Last Week, what the Gospels really teach about Jesus' final days in Jerusalem. They reject both of those interpretations. Jesus' intention, rather, is to symbolically shut down the whole temple to protest the temple worship is fatally corrupted by its complicity with injustice. You might call it, rather than the cleansing of the temple, the condemning of the temple. The robbers are not the money handlers or the dove sellers. They, they actually perform legitimate functions. They exchange coins that bear the emperor's graven image for temple coinage that's suitable as a sacred gift to God. The dove sellers provide birds for sacrifices of repentance that meet the established quality control for sacrifices to God. The real robbers, rather, are those in charge of the temple. These extortioners are making the temple their den, their hideout, their sanctuary, while they collaborate with a ruthless ruler behind a mask of piety. Instead of maintaining a house of prayer and protecting the faith against perversion, the priests are making themselves rich and extraordinarily privileged. This reminds me a bit of putting in charge of the Environmental Protection, Protection Agency someone who doesn't believe that the agency should even exist. Jesus' mission is not to make God's people great again in the eyes of conventional values, but to call God's people 
again to be God's people. Jesus' public condemnation of the temple seals his fate. The chief priests, we read in that passage, went looking for a way to kill him, and they found one. For his passion to unite worship with justice and integrity, Jesus pays with his own life. His passion leads to his passion on the executioner's cross. The world has always had a hard time with whistleblowers, with public plumb line holders. And God's people, whether Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or humanist, whatever, always seem to fail to stay faithful to the vision of God's purposes in the, for the ordering of human life. In the early church, the vision of community and equality burns brightly at first. These earliest Christians catch a vision of a discipleship of equals, a discipleship of equals, in the phrase of Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza. And they aspired to reject the gods of empire, status, and wealth. But to look at one well-documented instance, the Apostle Paul gets a report that elements in the congregation that he founded in that great city of Corinth, now Romanized Corinth, a Roman colony, is in being infected by Roman elite values of status, wealth, and reputation. And in what we know as his first letter to these Corinthians, he seeks to turn back this invasion of these alien values, reminding them of their humble origins and testifying to how in God's kingdom things are turned upside down. Those who consider themselves really strong, well, God takes those considered weak to embarrass them, to shame them. Those the world despises, he writes, he uses to overturn the despisers and the whole existing order. Boast, he says, not in possessions and status, but in God's purposes. By the way, I'm convinced that Paul is more of an ally of Jesus in justice uh, than we've given him credit for, but that's the subject for another time. <laughs> Think of our own Methodist forebears. In one particular way, they embody a remarkably Jesus-embedded vision regarding slavery when they organize in 1784. They boldly declare that Methodists dare not own slaves or participate in, in slave trafficking. But within two decades, as cotton production grows ever more lucrative, and as the church spreads up and down the eastern seaboard, this requirement is watered down and totally rescinded. And throughout the rest of the 1800s, the more Methodism gains in size and influence, the more it capitulates to prevailing material values. 
But new generations always catch the Jesus vision. And as the 19th century comes to a close, various sectors of the church, just to speak of the Methodist church, reclaim the social vision of God's purposes. We have the deaconess movement, the institutional church movement, church buildings with generous program facilities, probably like this one. Um, We have church settlement houses for the poor and for immigrants all of which emerge in tandem with the vision of the social. And so we have the new profession of social work, the emerging academic discipline of sociology, the political philosophy of Christian socialism, and new seminary courses in social ethics. Finally, these social critiques and the practice of charity and justice-seeking earn the moniker of social gospel. Social gospel. In Methodism, this fresh and exciting vision takes organizational form as the Methodist Federation for Social Service is organized in 1907. The next year... Federation leaders gain adoption at general conference of what becomes to be called the social creed of the churches, which declares, among other things, the church's support for a living wage and for workers' rights. Workers' rights to organize. In expanded form, this is now our inheritance as the social principles of the United Methodist Church, and a comprehensive book of resolution that serves as an extensive commentary on the social principles. And many members of this church have actually contributed language to um, these two documents. Now, over time, the Methodist Federation for Social Action as it came to be called, fights for workers' rights, raises serious questions about the morality of capitalism, opposes the racially segregated central jurisdiction when the branches of Methodism unite in 1939, and because of its advocacy of an economy of distributive justice, that is, an economy that distributes to all that which they basically need, and because of the advocacy for free speech and racial justice, McCarthyism makes MFSA a major target in the 1940s and 1950s and nearly wipes us out. Fast forward to the 1970s when I am asked to be executive and assist the Federation's renewal United Methodists around the country respond, and MFSA again assumes something of its historic function of holding a plumb line in the midst of church and society. Activists form what came to be chapters in 30 annual conferences. MFSA advocates for women's theology, LGBTQ justice, the unity of spirituality and justice, 
we witnessed against the Vietnam War, infant formula abuse, and a dozen of us get arrested blocking the doors of the denomination's pension board to protest collusion with apartheid. We take as our symbol the plumb line of Amos and try to live into that. And often, actually, back in the boardroom, you would sometimes find leaders of the revitalized New York Conference chapter sharing a meal as they draft the annual conference resolutions that Vicki was referring to and plan other programs. Now, decades later, MFSA has a magnificent new generation of leaders, chief among whom, of course, is national co-president Vicki Flippin. Under her leadership, together with others, MFSA is, MFSA is working among many priorities to counter white supremacy and, as she indicated, to support congregations in their missional outreach through our new program of justice-seeking congregations. And actually, I consider this congregation and all that you do to be a model of what I hope other congregations aspire to be and do. As Vicki said, your church board voted Thursday to formally declare yourselves, ourselves, a justice-seeking congregation. But you might ask, what difference does this make? You haven't, you've been that already. There could be a variety of answers that we'll probably be exploring over time. Let me suggest one. In today's context, I believe declaring one's church to be a justice-seeking congregation amplifies your no, N-O, your no. No to corruption in high places and to the further erosion of an already shaky safety, a social safety net. Your no to the loss of common decency in the White House. Your no to the further funneling of wealth to the richest, richest, and your no way to raising walls to shut out all who are not vanilla colored or from Norway. <laughs> you are now the seventh congregation that has signed on to the justice seeking program in these first few months. Together with them, stretching now from Philadelphia to Schenectady, and I'm sure with many more as moving west, I am sure your connection will amplify not only your no's, but also your yes. Your yes. Your yes that God is a God of justice, and that even in tough times, especially in challenging times, our calling as church is to do justice, to act with compassion, and humbly to walk with God. Congratulations. I look forward to walking you, walking with you in this walk. Amen.